This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hi folks, this is Jamar Tisby and welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. We have a very special guest with us today. He's been on the show before and every time he melts the mic with his fire quotes and incredible intellect. Welcome to Pass the Mic once again, Pastor Aaron James. How you doing, bro? I am good, brother. I'm happy to be on with you again. We know a certain somebody has his hands full right now. Yes, sir. Congratulations to Tyler Burns and Mylena on the birth of their second child. Benaya Langston Burns. Yes. It was a big boy, too. How much did he come Man, in He at? was eight pounds and I think like six ounces or something like that. Healthy, healthy baby. Oh, boy. Healthy baby. Healthy baby. We're excited for both of them. Obviously, Tyler's taking some uh, parent and family time. Uh, but in the meantime, I am thrilled that we get to talk to you again, Aaron. Tell us about your second season of your podcast. Tell us the name, what you're covering, why people should listen to it. Awesome, man. So I'm really excited about this second season of Theology Q&A with Aaron James. The theme for this entire second season of the podcast is Black Theology. And one of the first things that we wanted to do was to attempt to define Black Theology, talk about the definition of it. But not only that, to deal with what the Black church is, how Black theology intersects with the public arena uh, in terms of public policy and things of that nature, uh, Black preaching, and how Black theology has been, is right now, and will continue to be a witness to the world and um, just a blessing to the church at large. I think it's very important because even though the amount of resources and voices that contribute to Black theology and to, to the theological development and ecclesiological development within the Black community, I still believe that it is a seriously untapped resource uh, where so many of us uh, just remain unaware. And what a blessing it would be, what an encouragement to our faith it would be uh, to learn the names and the stories and some of the works to see how God has moved mightily in and through Black people throughout the history of the church. Man, I'm eager to dig in. I really enjoyed season one, learned a whole bunch about theology and the church and just sort of pastoral wisdom that you drop in each and every episode. And one of the things I like about your podcast is, is you keep the episodes fairly short, like around 20 minutes or so. Is that right? I do, man. Um, because it's just me, right? <laughs> and, but also I feel like in, in the tradition of Charles Octavius Booth, um, who wrote Plain Theology for Plain People, just to have something that people can sink their teeth into that doesn't get necessarily too academic or too scholarly, but just kind of whets the appetite, you know, uh, to spur people on to dig deeper into things. And so that's one of the reasons why we like to keep it shorter. 
Yeah, it's good. I mean, we could listen to you for much, much longer, but it's also one of those things where if you like to binge listen to things, I mean, you can get through a whole season on like a long commute. So anyway, I encourage folks to subscribe, rate, and review Aaron James's podcast. You will not regret it. It's also the kind of type of podcast that you can share with people. If you have friends who are thinking about Christianity or wondering about it, or if you have folks who are new to the faith or need a refresher, this is the perfect kind of podcast. It's very, very shareable. So congratulations on season two of that. And before we get into today's topic, which I'm really excited to, to dig into, I do want to mention the Joy and Justice Conference. I know we haven't said a whole ton about it, but stay tuned. We're going to have a lot more coming your way via social media and the website as well. But I want to keep it on your radar. It's October 4th and 5th in Chicago. You want to register at joyandjustice.com to get the early bird rates and the cheapest prices. Listen, folks, this is a stressful period in life, all right, under a particular presidential administration, uh, the racial tensions that we're experiencing, day-to-day life, the divisions along race and ethnicity in the church. It is exhausting. What this conference is going to be is a chance to take a break. It's going to be like a family reunion. You're going to meet people for the first time, but it's going to feel like you've known them for a long time because we're like-minded folks. We're gathering around uh, our faith in Jesus Christ, but we are also attuned to issues of justice, and we want to cultivate joy. So we want you to come and be refreshed, reinvigorated, and empowered to go back out to wherever God may have you right now. So if you're feeling that, stress, that, that, that sort of tautness in your spirit, the fatigue and the fragility of, of life, then come join us October 4th and 5th at the Joy and Justice Conference. You can register today at joyandjustice.com. We hope to see you there. All right, Aaron, this is what we got for today. We are talking about racism. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the spin on it. Here's the question. Is racism worse in the South? Mm. Is racism worse in the South than in other places? So so, so let's just kick it off and talk about that. Our, our initial responses to that question in general, and then we'll dig into it and see if there are some nuances, some gray areas that, that, that we can kind of tease out for everyone. What do you think? Is, when somebody would ask you that, is racism worth, worse in the South? How would you respond? You know, I would... I would respond that it's definitely more tangible. And what I mean by that is, as you well know, as someone who came up in the Midwest, but then transplanted to the Deep South, that in terms of our racist past and history, the relics of it are still alive and well and up the monuments, all of those things in the South, you know? And so it's not just you know, learning about racism simply in terms of history, but um, it's, it's, you know, being where I'm from in Louisiana, walking past a plantation that's still standing, slave quarters that are, that are still there. I would say in the South, you definitely actually visually see the representations of our country's racist past and, and of course, um, racism in the present. And I think that's probably one of the 
biggest differences between coming up in the South as opposed to growing up in the North or or maybe even out West, you know, or or in the Midwest because of the concentration of, of the Black population in the early days? And I know I'm kind of stepping over into your realm here. You're the historian, but oh, by but, all means, but just you know the 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 heavy concentration of black people within the United States in the early days of our country was in the South, you know, and so it was in the South that you had race based chattel slavery. It was in the South where we have the Confederacy, and not only the Confederacy, but the celebration of it, and and um you know, the idolizing of it. And so I would definitely say that even though I believe that racism is is definitely prevalent in all of the country and it is literally a part of the tapestry, the American tapestry, um, visually, I think those relics, those things that kind of loom large and, 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 and always remind us, I think that's one of the biggest differences between the North and the South. That's good. I completely agree. I try not to draw too sharp a distinction between racism in the South and other parts of the country, such as the Northeast, the Midwest, the West, other parts of the country. Um, What I do say, having grown up near Chicago and then coming to live down South, is there's a physicality to racism in the South, as you just mentioned. Uh, The fact that my commute to and from school at the University of Mississippi is literally through cotton fields. Man, yeah. It does come through. I mean, when you when you drive by those cotton fields blooming in late fall, uh, you can't help if you are relatively conscious and historically aware, but to think of sharecroppers and then before them enslaved people. You can't help uh, but look at some of the still standing antebellum style plantation homes that are out there. Uh, you can't help but to where I live in the in the Delta, to think of the Mississippi River and that phrase being sold down the river was a threat to people of African descent uh, further north. Because if you got sold down to river, it was down to down the river. It was to places like Mississippi and Louisiana, where the the work and the climate and the atmosphere socially was so oppressive that no one wanted to go down there. So that's the second part. Is what is it to to the question? Is racism worse in the south? Worse in the south? I'd say it's different, but I would also say I kind of understand where that question is coming from, historically mm-hmm. speaking, right? Because regionally, the south is where race-based chattel slavery had a stranglehold, and that was due to a lot of things, namely the climate and the geography. Uh, this was an agricultural-based area. There, there, there were large areas of land from which people pushed Native Americans out and then made into farmland. And so uh, slavery was, was critical to sort of the day-to-day life in the South, which is not to say that other areas of the country and, in, and even internationally weren't dependent on slavery and the products that, that enslaved people produced. It was all connected. But where it was actually happening more often was the South. And then you move forward to the civil rights era and the racism in the South was such that Jim Crow was very obvious and apparent. Now there, there were manifestations of Jim Crow everywhere, right? But in the South is where these stark divisions, physical divisions between the races were so manifest. And so it made for very dramatic sort of confrontations over 
uh, justice and, and racial injustice in the South because the buses were segregated, the lunch counters were segregated, the schools were segregated. And again, we can find manifestations of this everywhere, but it was just so stark in the South. So I kind of get where the question comes from. But do you think there's an issue or a problem behind people asking or assuming that racism is worse in the South? I, I think that... If I were if I were to point out one problem, I believe it would be to say that racism only exists in the South, right? You know, like you know, once you get past the Mason right. Dixon line, oh, we are right up here, you know. And, and the truth of the matter is that simply isn't true. Um, you know, as you mentioned historically, you have to live in the South. Um, you have to live in such close proximity. Um, to racism, <laughs> like you, you don't have a choice, you know, in, in, in some ways. And, um, and the way in which racism manifests itself, I've seen from my personal, my limited personal experience in terms of moving around and knowing people is that it manifests a little differently. And so I think a good example would be where, for instance, as you mentioned in the South, you had these, this blatant, you know, the, the blatant injustices and racism of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and, and all of those things that were just in your face, very violent, very oppressive, uh, to, to black people, whereas in the North, it would be racism manifested in a different way. And what I mean by that, like, for instance, um, around about the same time, you know, as a civil rights movement is going on in a city like Philadelphia, no, there may not be necessarily these marches and things like that taking place in the street or, or, or very um, open, violent displays like what happened in Selma. But at the same time, if you took a look at who was employed, right? Uh, very few black people were employed in businesses that wh whose main uh, area of revenue and patronage came from black people. And, and so it was like more, it seemed like it was be more of a, um, a quieter exclusion, you know, um, uh, uh, from life and opportunity that exists in the North, where sometimes in the South, it seems like it was definitely more blatant, more in your face, a lot louder and, um, and, and violent, even though racial violence exists throughout the country. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, my issue with that question you know, is racism worth worse in the South or assuming that that racism is most acute in the South? My issue with that is many times people who say that or think that yeah. use the South as a scapegoat for racism. They're basically saying, well, we have problems where we live, but at least we're not the South. Or they might name a state, Mississippi, Alabama, Panhandle of Florida, wherever it might be, right? And that's extremely problematic because, as you mentioned earlier, I grew up in in, in the Midwest. Uh, we were a lot more integrated mm. on the surface, right? Like, so Chicago is, to this day, one of the most segregated cities in America. But there's a lot of different people from Polish people to Puerto Ricans to uh, Angolans to African Americans, you name it, right? And and a lot of them, you know, a lot of people groups have their own neighborhoods and kind of stick to their own neighborhoods, which is part of the problem of segregation, right? But it was easy for me growing up in that environment and for others around me to assume that because there was the presence of different people groups, we didn't have problems with prejudice. And that was totally wrong. 
uh, if you dig beneath the surface a bit, you see the schools are segregated. You see that the neighborhoods are segregated. You see that there is racial inequality in all kinds of areas from economics to politics and, and, and more. But you could fool yourself because you would look at places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama and you would see you know, these grainy black and white images from the civil rights movement of cops confronting protesters who were black, etc. You would hear all of these stories about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and, and everyone else. And that's all in the South. And you don't hear much about the problems in the North or the Midwest or other parts of the country. But I have to say, I had to include a whole chapter about racism outside the South in my book, The Color of Compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shameless plug. But I, I refer to it because I spent a lot of time researching it. <laughs> Darn it. Now nah, we need to hear that story, brother. I'm just saying. I'm not trying to self-promote. But this was one. It, it wasn't. It, it actually, this is, a, this is a bit of a backstory. That chapter on racism outside the South wasn't in the original manuscript that I submitted. That was feedback that I got from some of the readers who who um, edited it before it went to press. And they said, uh, you need to include more about racism beyond the South. Otherwise, people will think it's just a Southern problem. And that's my issue. It's like racism is not just a Southern problem. It's not even more of a problem in a South than in other areas. You just have to be attuned to the way racism operates and functions differently in different parts of the country. So that's my rant on that. No, you know, and and it, it goes to the point that you've made several times. And I believe it's a very, very powerful point where you, you and and um, I don't know if I'm quoting this verbatim, but you say you, you, you said and written this, uh, mul- you know, multiple times that racism doesn't disappear. It adapts. And I think that's what we've seen. We've seen the adaptation uh, of racism depending on what region of the United States we live in. You know, um, because there are some areas of the country that people would would see. Well, oh, they're they're far more enlightened or progressive, or maybe even use the term liberal. But you start, like you said, you start peeling back the layers and digging beneath the surface, and it's like, oh wow, racism is here too, Milwaukee, or racism is here too, Northwest. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's it, it that really is the case. Have you heard of this phrase, NIMBY? The acronym NIMBY? No. It's, it stands for Not In My Backyard. Huh. NIMBY. And they use it, this, this phrase is applicable to all kinds of people in all parts of the country. And I thought of NIMBY because as we're thinking about how racism operates in areas outside the South, this is one of the ways that it operates. And so NIMBY, Not In My Backyard, is basically shorthand for communities, typically middle-class, suburban, oftentimes white communities, but not exclusively, saying that whatever sort of change which would bring about racial equality and would also result in people of color or poor people being closer to them, they protest and essentially take the attitude of not in my backyard. Like You, you might be fine to do this, but, but somewhere else, not near me. Huh. 
And so this idea of NIMBY comes into play a lot when they are constructing zoning ordinances and thinking of sort of uh, mixed income property that would bring poor people closer to certain communities. And the people already in those communities are like, no, if you bring in poor people, that's going to raise crime. These people are going to be people of color. We don't like them, et cetera, et cetera. They won't necessarily say that outright, the racist part they'll they'll use proxies like crime or you know schools deteriorating etc but it basically means the same thing and they're saying you can do this but not near me another area where nimby takes place where folks might not have thought of it in relation to this this uh phenomenon is with is with busing and so busing made national news media again fairly recently with uh, Democratic candidates for President Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Joe Biden had supported anti-busing initiatives. Busing, if you'll recall, was um, a way for the government to ensure racial equity uh, in in public schooling. And mm-hmm. so students, both black and white, would get bused to different schools to ensure uh, racial mixing, racial balances, and uh, an equitable distribution, distribution of resources. Well, the NIMBY response was, essentially, we don't want our kids going to those schools, meaning more affluent kids going to poor schools, nor do we want too many poor kids coming to, quote unquote, our schools. Keep them away. Keep them. Let them have their own schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this was in the north. One of the most notorious uh, uh, anti-busing kind of protests came in Boston, really, which is far from the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I say all that because you can look for when you know what to look for. You see it in a lot more places than the south. Speaking of which, we didn't really get into this at the beginning, but you have a very interesting geographical and cultural biography because although you're a Southern boy, you've been in the military. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in in what your exposure what your exposure was to racism be, because you were in the military surrounded by all kinds of people. You know what? Regardless, I'll say it like this. Traveling in different spaces and traveling around the world, pretty much, it's everywhere. That's the craziest thing, that there's never a time where as as a, a, a black man serving um, abroad or at home, active duty military service in the Marines, that we didn't have to wrestle with and deal with racism. Um, I'll give you a, one example. We were in the Middle East, right? And we were about to rotate home. And one of the things that we have to do sometimes is go through customs, but it's customs where we're kind of like all of our gear is staged out and we have like a ton of stuff that, that we carry with us and different types of things. And they, they check, they go through and they do these random checks and I'm, I'm doing my air quotation marks right now for random. Right. And so I never forget a good friend of mine who was Nigerian, we we were joking because we were by each other. And and the joke was this, Jamar, if we are separate, it's probably almost a hundred percent chance that our stuff is going to get checked, right? That we're going to get singled huh. out. 
but we we joked like in jest, but like, you know how we do. Like there are some jokes we make amongst ourselves that we're laughing, but we know that these are realities, right? That that are, that are problematic yeah, re- re- realities, you know? And so no joke. We said, okay, if uh-huh. we stand by each other, we decrease our chances of getting our stuff checked by 50%. And I'm telling you, we stood by each other with our gear stage. They literally got to us and looked at us and picked him. I mean, it just, it just, you just can't make that stuff up, man. Wow. You know? And then there were other experiences like being at the barbershop and having barbers complain that they weren't used to cutting that type of hair or my type of hair, you know? Uh. And, and so definitely in in various ways, regardless of where we were stationed, where um, wherever we were, it was always something that we had to deal with, even in military service, even in different bases. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up that international perspective. Uh, I was never in the military except for a year of Air Force ROTC, but uh, that was as close as, <laughs> close as I got and, and as much as I could handle. So hats off to you. But um, I did have the privilege of of traveling internationally. When I was a student in college, I studied abroad in the Middle East, in the Holy Land is what really? they call it. Because I never knew that. Oh, man. You never knew. You never knew. No. Uh, yeah, man, that was a, a formative experience for me. I could do a whole episode on it, but I will spare you all the details. Let me just talk about sort of our racial encounters while we were there. So it was super interesting. We stayed at a place called Tantour Ecumenical Institute, which is a unique spot. It is Vatican-owned property, and so it is not uh, doesn't belong to Israel doesn't belong to the Palestinians. In fact, it's right smack in the middle of those two areas. And so we got exposure to both the Jewish side of things and the Palestinian side of things, which was really unique. But what was kind of constant was kind of the racialization of everything. So this part's kind of funny. I I, I was a college student, and so uh, – at this point in my life, I was shaving my head bald, which was all the rage. I mean, think of Michael Jordan, right? Yep, you know, yep. this is what people did. It's a timeless classic. <laughs> I might do it again. It's very low maintenance. I like it. But I was over there, and this is more pop culture. But all they, you know, all the fo- Middle Eastern folks, particularly people of Arab uh, background, all they really knew was like musicians yeah. <laughs> and and uh music stars so everywhere i went they were like tupac tupac it's tupac. no way oh, do you man. Know tupac? <laughs> <laughs> i was like okay all right yeah uh people were asking me do you know michael jordan you know one of the only black people they knew over there who's also bald etc cetera, etc cetera. uh so that was kind of a humorous side to things a, 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 but a little less humorous were the assumptions they made about americans in general and particularly white women so americans in general they thought all of us were rich because compared to most other places we we are even if we're not uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. considered rich. Uh, we, we tend to have a bit more money than folks elsewhere. Uh, so they would always ask us for money, the white people, more than me or the brown-skinned uh, Latino guy. I think he was from Mexico originally, uh, or his parents were, who was with us. Um, and then with the women, they thought they were all like promiscuous and easy. And so wow. they would literally the, the the white women would literally get propositioned for 
sex, for marriage, for all kinds of things uh, while we were over there. And, you know, again, it's a lot of it's based on pop culture, but some of it's based on, you know, racial lines. And then kind of a, a, another insidious manifestation of racism that we saw internationally was in Israel, the way that Ethiopian Jews who were dark skinned were treated compared to Jews of, say, European background. Uh, it f- Man, talk about that. It felt really like a second class status there. Um, I don't know if there's, you know, a, a Jim Crow system that was or, or is formalized there. But usually if you saw people cleaning or cashiers or sort of the the basic tasks in life, the the so-called unskilled labor, that was usually darker skinned people. A lot of them were Ethiopian Jews. Uh, and, and, and that was just something I wasn't prepared for. I just, I, it, it hadn't crossed my mind having not you know lived there or been familiar with the background, but I was like, wow, this feels really familiar. And then on a broader level, the way they treated Palestinians and Arabs, and this is controversial in Christian circles, but it's coming, it's only controversial to a lot of people who either haven't been to the Middle East or have only taken the sort of pro-America tours that shield you from a lot of the reality that's happening on the other side. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know this, but you know, the way they treated Palestinians is, is they have a stranglehold over their country. When we were over there, this is, this is kind of far afield from our original topic, but it's all going to relate. Trust me. Um, when we were abroad, they had stopped, uh, the, uh, Israeli government had stopped garbage collection services to Bethlehem and, people didn't have any place to put their garbage on a week by week basis. So there would just be these vacant lots that week by week would get fuller and fuller of more and more trash because there was no organized service to pick it up. And I was just like, of all the really cruel things you could do is let people remain in their own trash uh, for political reasons. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and you know, that, that that has a lot it's very complicated obviously that's why there there hasn't been lasting peace in the middle east this is a very difficult intractable conflict but you can't erase the racial component and the ethnic component from it as well and so it it's looping back around because you're saying you know this is this is not only nationwide this is a worldwide issue absolutely there, there's something that i think is important too and and this is something definitely that I know that you've seen in, in your studies and 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 your experience, but you've written and you've talked a lot, Jamar, about the 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 lost cause, you know, and just how the Confederacy um has been was and and is to some degree by some like romanticized, you know, and and the way in which the the slavery and, and all of those things have been by some and still believed by far too many to, to have been like in some ways, like a good thing, right? You know, the whole, this is our heritage sort of thing, right? I wanted to ask you, do you think that it's possible that the same thing happens with the Northern part of the United States historically? And what I mean by that is to like, you know, so even though 
there were people who were against slavery in the North, that just because someone was against slavery in the North doesn't mean that they were for the equality and the equity of Black people, even in Northern society. Like, have you seen that wow. that's that, that kind of get Man, misconstrued there, you know, where it's like like it's like, well, the North was like light years ahead socially uh, of of the South when that isn't really true. Man, that's a, such a good What are your point. thoughts on that in particular? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we have a tendency in general as human beings to valorize the exceptions. Uh, particularly when it comes to racial justice. And so Christians, for instance, will look at the William Wilberforces of the world or uh, the repentant John Newton and sort of hold them up as examples. This is what, you know, real Christians were doing. And these people are our true heritage, never actually acknowledging that they were the exception that proved the rule that far, far, far more people of faith were complicit in racism, uh, both in the United States and abroad, than opposed it. And I think a similar dynamic is happening as people outside the South, in the North, the Midwest, the Northeast, the West, look at race in this country. They say, well, you know, the, the North was the Union. We were fighting to abolish slavery uh, during the civil rights movement, all of the the worst battles were happening in the South, and the North was re- relatively calm. Both of those are untrue uh, and exaggerations at best. And so, as you mentioned, uh, to be an abolitionist didn't mean that you were pro-black or for the full equality of people of color. Uh, there were a lot of people who were abolitionists merely for you know, economic or political reasons. They just thought this this wasn't a good way for society to be structured, but they never really considered the full humanity and equality of black people. It's, it's, it's NIMBY in the 19th century. They still didn't want black people in their cities, in their neighborhoods, or gaining the same rights and privileges that white people had. Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, which even black people called him, uh, mm-hmm. was far from uh, and a racial egalitarian, he entertained and uh, asked about the feasibility of sending all black people back to Africa after the war. Uh, leading up to the election when he was elected president, he uh, he advocated for abolition because he just didn't think the country could survive with slavery as 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 an institution. But he he said explicitly he was not advocating for the social equality. Of black people. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People outside the South should be very reticent to sort of pat themselves on the back, either today or historically, because to be in the North or to be an abolitionist or to be, you know, supportive of certain civil rights didn't necessarily mean that you were for the full equality and human dignity of black people. So, yeah, that's 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 right on the money there. And people would do well to remember that and have some humility as they look at instances of racism. Uh, and speaking of instances, I would I often call to mind the fact that if you look at some of the most explosive racist incidents, they're not all in the South. And so 
the Watts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Watts uprisings in the 1960s. That was Los Angeles. Uh, Ferguson in 2014. That is St. Louis, which is uh, you know considered a, a Midwest uh, city and state. Uh, if you look at Eric Garner, that's uh, that's Long Island. Uh, if you look at Philando Castile, that's Minnesota. Like these things are happening everywhere. And it's not just, it's hardly just the South. But I think because of the history of the South, particularly related to race-based chattel slavery, whenever something happens here, it's like amped up to 12. And when something similar happens elsewhere, people are like, oh, it's just, you know, a rare occurrence. But yeah. Jamar, do you think a book like The Warmth of Other Suns would be a good resource for people to kind of... um just begin to familiarize themselves with themselves with and read because as it talks about the, the, the great migration, um, whether to the North or West, just kind of the, the stories and the things that people encountered as they did that, you know, brilliant book, long book, but very well. Yeah. It's uh, long. Told. That's why I said, just gotta <laughs> just start cracking it open, you know, <laughs> you know take, it in, take it in small pieces. You know, that's how you eat an elephant. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's. I think you're right to bring up the Great Migration. Um, a really big understanding or sort of uh, light bulb moment for me in the study of history came in examining the Great Migration and hearing historians say this wasn't just people moving in search of better opportunities. In many ways, you could think of Black people as refugees fleeing the South, which just struck me like a a ton of bricks in the chest. The idea, because it's so accurate, right? One of the reasons why I think this idea that racism in the South is so much worse than elsewhere is because many of the lynchings that we know about, those did take place in the South. And so when Black people in the Jim Crow era from the late 19th century on up really through the 50s and Brown v. Board of Education, when they're in the South, which is where the majority of Black people have been throughout U.S. history, they're thinking of the racial terrorism that they're having to endure. And then they're looking at places like Chicago and Cleveland and New York and Los Angeles as, as relative safe havens compared to the violence they were used to. Uh, so it is helpful then to look at the great migration, uh, which occurred in about the first third to first half of the 20th century and understand the reasons why people are leaving the South, but also understand that when they got to different places outside the South, what they encountered there too was racism. And so it was housing discrimination. It was uh, exploitative labor practices. They were locked out of units. They couldn't get promotions. They couldn't get loans. All of these things go into the mass movement of Black people out of the South. That yes, there was this optimism, and even the the newspaper, the Black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, was an advocate for people, for Black people to move outside of the South. And people, uh, white landowners in the South, hated it because they were losing laborers. And so the Great Migration actually caused some plantation owners to give black people better deals uh, to get them to stay. It also caused a crackdown on sort of like black code type of of laws to put to force black people to stay 
in the South. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The Warmth of Other Suns, if you want a a less long but still lengthy treatment of it, it's still a classic. Ta-Nehisi Coates's the, the Case for Reparations in the Atlantic is a wonderful place to start yes. because it talks about the great migration, housing discrimination, all of that stuff. Absolutely. I think the thing that, that stands out the most about this whole conversation that I think is really important for people to understand is that throughout our history and even up to our present, regardless of where we've been, that we have as a people been able to change our geographic location, but we have never been able to uh, change who we are and how we are embraced as a whole throughout this country. That regardless of the ways in which racism has adapted and expressed itself from one region of this country to the next, there is still a shared commonality, uh, uh, an experience that we all have, whether you were born and raised in the deep South or you were born and raised in one of the five boroughs of New York or out in Compton or in the Northwest or in the Midwest for that matter. Um, we all kind of like when I'm talking to people, from different parts of the country, particularly black sisters and brothers, we all have that shared common experience. And we've, we've shared stories, some of the very painful of the ways in which we have encountered racism. <sighs> That's so right. Uh, just thinking about it, it kind of fatigues me that there's no place we as black people can go, certainly not in the United States, where we're going to be shut off. There's no, there's no Wakanda. Yeah. <laughs> There's no Wakanda yet. Um I guess we look forward to our heavenly yes, Wakanda, Lord. right? Um a a time when I mean just imagine, right, an eternity with Jesus where we can be who we are culturally and racially and that's not a deficit or a disadvantage. That's a that's a glorious celebration of diversity which you know we think about heaven, but it also brings us down to earth and what church should be. And the idea that, that churches should be, congregations should be the outposts of heaven that demonstrate to the world what it looks like to embrace all kinds of people and not in a colorblind kind of way, like, oh, differences, we don't see them, etc. But no, we see your differences we celebrate them as part of God's multifaceted creation. We welcome them. And we fall far short of that right now. <laughs> but that's the hope. I mean, a lot of people ask us, you know, what we're going toward. For me, it's that anyone from any place of any background could walk into any congregation and feel at home. That's what I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. But And I know you're on this struggle day in, day out, week in, week out as a local church pastor. Uh, prayers up for you and for all Christian leaders in churches doing the work. This is not easy, but hopefully this conversation helps to frame some things. Don't scapegoat the South. Don't say, well, at least we're not Mississippi. At least we're not Pensacola. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for Tyler and Aaron, my my, my Pete. Cola boys. I don't know what they call y'all. Anyway, um, don't <laughs> scapegoat the South. There's racism everywhere, which means we all need to be vigilant on our guard and fighting this issue. Aaron James, a pleasure as always, brother. 
dropping knowledge, spitting wisdom. We appreciate you. Man, thank you so much for having me on again, brother. Absolutely. That's it for this week's episode of Pass the Mic. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Don't just shut us off. Go do it now. If you're driving, wait till you stop. And then subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.